December 16th is a very special day for husbands in particular. It is nine days before Christmas, and this is the day that annually we panic and wonder what we're getting our wives for Christmas. I have the good news of the gospel of the women's retreat. (laughs) Men, I have solved your problem. If you simply go out in the foyer and get a gift certificate to help your wife go to the women's retreat, which is at the end of February, early March this coming year, and you don't even have to be married to do this. If you're just a church member and you want to help sponsor a woman, uh, either a particular one or or uh, uh, just to, to help in general, we would love for you to help as well. So men, do not say, I never served you. I have solved your Christmas shopping problem today. With that, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1. Now for many of us, the anticipation of Christmas as a little kid, really marked the highlight of the year. I mean, in our house, our kids, December 1st, they, they started becoming nervous wrecks, wondering what they're going to get. And, and when I was a child, we just expected these free presents to rain down on us. And in fact, in our family, we got so excited that my little brother and I traditionally would stay up all night playing Monopoly because we couldn't sleep anyway the night before Christmas. But hopefully at some point, there's a dawning realization that we don't exist to receive free gifts from everyone else on the planet, that we actually would like to give, and we begin to find joy in giving gifts as well. But in a very real sense, Christians can stay like little kids, like little children, when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ. It it seems to be so easy to picture the church solely as something that's given to me, for me, for my benefit, for my enjoyment. And certainly the church is a gift in which we receive much. But is it solely a gift for me? Is the church for me? A recent study showed that 83% of American church attenders said that preaching is a major factor in choosing the church. That's good. Feeling welcomed and style of music was a close second and third when it came to choosing a church. I don't know how you would judge Grace Bible Church because we just sang music from four different musical eras today. Other factors would include location, Education for children, having friends and family in the congregation, service opportunities, all kinds of other factors to a lesser degree. And of course you care, and of course we want to be discerning when choosing a church. The the topic of finding a good church is easy to find. This is written on extensively. It's all there there are books, there are articles, all kinds of things. But what's written on less extensively is what you can do to make your church worth choosing. To make your church something that's pleasing to the Lord, what we can do together to elevate our church instead of being a consumer to be a servant. In other words, thinking from the standpoint that the local church is not just a gift for us, but the church of Jesus Christ is just that. It is the church of, which belongs to, for, pertaining to, all about, pointed at, Christ. It is his church. The church is for the Lord. The church is for his pleasure. In fact, this is exactly the dynamic that the Apostle Paul writes about multiple times in the book of Ephesians. And just listen, you don't have to turn here, but I just want to show you that that Ephesians shows that the church is about God. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, the church is built to be God's dwelling. 
Ephesians 3, verse 10, the church is built to display God's wisdom. Ephesians 4, verse 8, the church is built as payment to God's Son. Ephesians 4, 12, and 13, the church is built in order to know God's Son. So you have the church is built for God's dwelling, to display God's wisdom as payment to God's Son, so that we can know God's Son. But in the book of Ephesians, for me, there is a clincher that nails this argument down which really convinces me that the church of Jesus Christ is not so much a gift presented to you and to me, but the church is a gift presented to Christ. And this is in Ephesians 5, in the illustration of the husband's role with a wife. The Apostle Paul explains that husbands are to be like Christ, quote, who loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That convinces me that the church of Jesus Christ is a bride for him, to be presented to him. And the Lord Jesus is very jealous for the holiness and the purity of his bride. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we see Christ evaluating seven local churches. Some he gives high marks, some he gives low marks. And why does he do this? Because the church belongs to him, it's for him, it's bought by him, it's purchased by him. He, he brought the church to himself with his own life. The church is God's gift to Jesus. And we're called by God to be a Christ-honoring gift back to the Lord. And so during this Christmas season and, and really into the New Year season as well, I want to spend some time considering what I'm calling our gift to Jesus. That this Christmas season, rather than thinking about what we receive What is our gift to Jesus? And that is the gift of a church that is honoring to Christ, one that he could be proud of, one that he would give high marks to. And to help us consider how to do our individual parts to present our gift to Jesus, I'd like to consider a church in the New Testament which receives high marks, receives high praise. It's a church which was a trailblazer in ministry. It's a church which endured great persecution in the midst of her faithfulness. This is a church which was well-led and well-fed into the Word of God and the Apostles' teaching. This is a church that has stood the test of time in Scripture as worthy of, of emulating. This is a church which had qualities that we would do well to imitate and to be like them. It was a church which makes the doctrine of ecclesiology, that is the, the study of the church, come alive to us and inspire us to greatness in our own little church body. And this church is, in fact, the very first church the only church in history that could rightfully hang a sign out in front that says, First Church of Jesus Christ. And that is, of course, the Church of Jerusalem. And so over the next six messages or so, we're going to look at the Church of Jerusalem. And this is partly to help us have more of a a godly and servant attitude toward our own church, toward the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's also to prepare our hearts for the coming joyful generosity giving campaign that we announced last week. Because before we can talk about giving, it's first our duty and our joy to be clear-headed about a sound and a very biblical ecclesiology, to, to lay a foundation about what we are giving to. Why is it that we receive an offering? Why is it that we do this work? So we'll take a break for the next couple of months from the Gospel of John and examine 
what a church that is truly a gift to Jesus looks like, what a spotless and pure bride of Christ looks like. And we'll identify six different elements of a sound church. We'll do one each week. Keep it very simple. So today, our gift to Jesus, the part that we'll look at, we'll just call a well-ordered church. A well-ordered church. We'll spend the next number of weeks in Acts 1 through 12, kind of skipping around to some different portions, which really gives us our primary information about the church of Jerusalem and and what a church this was. They began like no other church in history. The book of Acts here stands alone as the only inspired church history in Acts chapter 1, sets up the, the outworking of the ministry of Christ now through the apostles empowered by the Holy Spirit. Acts serves as a bridge between the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, and it also gives us a, an historical context for the rest of the New Testament. It helps us understand the church at Corinth, the churches of Galatia, the churches of Ephesus, and so forth. In fact, Acts chapter 1 reminds us of the ascension and the last words of Jesus Christ on earth, which also happens to serve as the plan, the outline of the book of Acts. The same thing in the same verse. Look with me at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The last words of Christ on earth and what's going to happen in the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this is exactly what Acts outlines. 30 years or so of church history in which the apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are witnesses of Christ first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, the Roman province in which Jerusalem was, then Samaria to the north, and then to the ends of the earth. By the end of the book of Acts, the gospel has now gone to every major part of the Mediterranean world. It was continuing to spread like wildfire, and it hasn't stopped for 2,000 years. And so the apostles were instructed now to wait upon the Holy Spirit to come as Jesus promised that he would. And in the meantime, they chose a replacement for Judas. Look with me at the very last verse of Acts chapter 1, Acts one twenty six. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And now, about ten days after the ascension of Christ, we have Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Who was all together? Well, take out that big black number 2 right before the word when, because there aren't chapter divisions in, in the original text of Scripture. Who was all together? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they... This is a plural personal pronoun which refers to an antecedent, the last group that's mentioned by name. Who's the last group mentioned by name? Chapter 1, verse 26, the 11 apostles, which now is 12 again, with Matthias. So the 12 are all together when the Holy Spirit comes upon all of them and they began to speak in languages they hadn't learned. They began proclaiming the gospel to a a gathered crowd of thousands of of people, thousands of Jews. They were proclaiming the gospel in at least 15 different languages by the miraculous power of God. And the apostle Peter, Acts 2.14 says, standing with the 11, he preached a, a stunning sermon from the Old Testament book of Joel explaining that the Holy Spirit had now come as the beginning of God's fulfillment of his promise to bring a new covenant And then he he accused and convicted the listening Jews of crucifying their Messiah. Look with me at Acts 2, verse 36. 
And he closes his message. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And at this seminal moment, this crucial moment, this key moment in all of history, the Holy Spirit moved in the heart of 3,000 who cried out for forgiveness. They cried out for mercy and they received salvation through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for the first time in history an entire people indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They were baptized. They were added to the brand new church. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and those who were added that day, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And now with that background, today's part of our gift to Jesus, a well-ordered church, and we'll, we'll divide this very simply. There's two ways that the church of Jerusalem was a well-ordered church. First of all, the members knew what to do And second, the leaders knew what to do. The members knew what to do and the leaders knew what to do. The first way that this was a well-ordered church, the members knew what to do. I'm gonna spend almost all of our time on this because if you know that the members knew what to do, what you're seeing is the fruit of the fact that the leaders knew what to do. So, So the members knowing what to do really answers our question about the leaders. So we'll spend most of our time on the members. There was never a question It's amazing to me. In Acts 2.41, the verse I just read, the church is birthed. In Acts 2.42, they get their priorities exactly right the first time. They knew what to do. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And what were their priorities? I want to divide this as simply as we can. We could divide this a number of ways, but I want to just identify three. Three top priorities. The first one we'll just call preaching. Preaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what is the apostles' teaching? That is a a technical term. It refers to the body of work, the body of material that was considered authoritative because it was the message of Jesus Christ proclaimed solely by commissioned apostles, witnesses of Christ. It, It is, we could put it this way, a compilation of what Christ taught the apostles And they pass this on. This is his life, his ministry, an account of his passion, his resurrection, his ascension, and all that this means for mankind's redemption. So the apostles' teaching is this body of work. And as soon as they wrote it down, we have the inspired text of Scripture, the apostles' teaching of the New Testament. Now, it's called the apostles' teaching, not as opposed to the apostles' preaching, but simply as a term for that body of work that they were proclaiming. So we could say this, that they were preaching the apostles' teaching. Does that make sense? Now, I could split hairs and say that this is teaching, not preaching, but I'm going to say that this is teaching with the applicational quality of preaching. How do we know this? Well, verse 47 says that these new Christians were having favor with all the people. In other words, they were immediately demonstrating living lives which showed Christ, they were demonstrating heart change as evidenced by what? By behavior change. They were living differently. These new believers weren't obnoxious. They, They weren't a stench to their community. They were a blessing to their community. They were pleasant. They were attractive to the soul. Why? Because they were sanctified by the preaching of the apostles' teaching. But I want to focus on their attitude toward the preaching of the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to it. 
They were devoted to it. This is a word that means to continue in something with intensive effort, to work at something, to persist, to hold fast to something, to endure in it, to remain faithful. Now that concept is very interesting to me as the guy who stands on this side of the pulpit. Because in my years of ministry, I've observed as a preacher, and I've, I've done my best to exposit the scriptures as faithfully as I can, but I've observed that there are two kinds of believers who say with their mouth that they love the preached word. You ready for this? There are the believers who say they can live with it, and there are the believers who say they can't live without it. And I have noticed that difference. Those who listen to the preached word out of a sense of discipline and those who listen to the preached word because they can't stop because they love the word of God. They, they cherish the word of God. And it appears that the church in Jerusalem was made up of that latter category. No one had to plead with them to attend church more regularly. If they had a grace Bible church, it wasn't please grace us with your presence at a Bible church. They wanted to be there. They, they were hungry. And by the way, they were also so hungry that they were bringing all their friends to this spiritual feast. Verse 47 says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. How, how was this happening? Through the first and the greatest from that time to this time evangelistic method ever, and that is preaching. That these believers who were devoted to the preached word of God were telling their friends and family, listen, you've got to hear this message. It was as simple as that. Come with me. Come with me. At our recent men's mini retreat, I challenged the men to be devoted to expository preaching, meaning to not miss a single message in any series that gets preached at Grace Bible Church. There is a flow to it. There is a thought that goes through it. To let the God-ordained work of preaching do its work by being devoted to continue to do something with intensive effort, to persist, to remain in, to hold fast to. I have a dear friend at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley who is a stalwart example in his devotion to the preached word of God. And trust me, just because John MacArthur is your pastor doesn't mean that every church member is devoted to the preached word. It just means some of them like saying John MacArthur is my pastor. Dr. MacArthur arrived in February of 1969. My friend came to an evening service in December of 1970 He was saved at an evening service hearing the gospel. And for the past 48 years, I just talked to him a couple of weeks ago. He is fairly certain he has heard every message that has ever been preached from that pulpit. He has kept up for 48 years. That's thousands of messages. And listen, if you knew my friend, he's as down to earth. What you see is what you get. Lifetime blue collar career guy. He is just a normal, run-of-the-earth, run-of-the-mill guy who, by the way, can also speak intelligently on any subject of theology and could pass an elder's ordination exam with his eyes closed. Why? Because he's been devoted to preaching for five decades. And he is a walking Bible. We must start with the priority of preaching And if we're to present our gift to Jesus, my call to you is to elevate your love for, elevate your devotion to the preached word of God. We could use the Church of Jerusalem to identify a second priority. The members knew what to do. Second priority is partnership. 
partnership. They devoted themselves not only to the apostles' teaching, but to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Uh, This descriptor, they devoted themselves, it also modifies the fellowship, the breaking of bread, so there's an equal amount of, of devotion and intensive effort applied to this. Now, it could be that the breaking of bread refers in technical fashion to the Lord's table, as we're going to share later this morning. But that phrase didn't really come to specifically mean the Lord's table until the second century. Maybe it is the Lord's table, and there are good reasons to believe that, and and I, I would lean that direction. But many commentators connect it even more meaningfully to the fellowship that the breaking of bread was more commonly used just to simply speak of sharing a meal. Sharing the meal together. I think the best solution to that problem is that the saints regularly shared meals together and at that meal they also partook of the Lord's table. We see this pattern at the church of Corinth. And in the case of the church in Jerusalem, the faith of the saved Jews was immediately causing hardship and persecution and difficulty because people were losing jobs, they were losing family members, they were losing businesses, they were being persecuted for their faith immediately because they were perceived by family as walking away from the faith of their fathers. And so you had this immediate giant need and what was the church doing? Chapter 2, verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Wow. What a day that was. I would give anything to go to church every day. I'd be happy to, but none of you would be here. But I do want to focus on this very precious word to the Christian, the fellowship. It's one of the very few Greek words that many Christians have already heard, so I'll mention it. It's the word koinonia. Koinonia means communion. It means an association. It means partnership. And it can have a fairly broad spectrum of meanings. It can also refer to a financial contribution, to sharing money by giving to the church. Romans fifteen twenty six for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution, some koinonia. It's easy to remember it's a contribution because there's the word coin in it. So you can remember that. But it's it's just the sharing of all things. And these were the glory days of the church, daily going to the temple to hear the apostles preach, then going to homes and breaking bread together, taking care of one another, all while experiencing really the greatest church growth phenomena in church history. This idea is completely the opposite It is completely antithetical to the 21st century idea of staying aloof from the church, of of trying out the church, of anything less than full participation, of thinking of the church as as a separate entity from yourself. Listen, if you think of the church of Jesus Christ as a separate entity from yourself, could I warn you, first of all, that that might actually be the case? that you might not be a part of the church, capital C, universal, made up of all saved people of all ages. But at a slightly lower level for believers, thinking of the church as a separate entity from yourself is not only unbiblical, it's extremely spiritually dangerous for you. It's very dangerous. Let me me give you three spiritual dangers of being aloof from the local church. The first one is that you can deceive yourself. You can deceive yourself. You can begin to see yourself as different or better than others, that serving and fellowshipping and faithfully attending and and giving, that these are things that the less enlightened people do. 
Sometimes when I ask somebody, what, what is it that's kept you from becoming a member at Grace Bible Church? They'll say, well, I have my reasons for not fully participating. In other words, I know something you don't know. I know better than you. And I know better than all those poor slobs who signed up to be members. This is the epitome of the warning of Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You know what I've found? I found that somebody who wants to stay aloof from the church has parts of their life they don't want anybody to find out about. That's generally what I've found to be the case. You can deceive yourself. Here's a second spiritual danger. You can lose heavenly reward. You can lose heavenly reward. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. He said earlier that the foundation is Christ. It is the gospel in Christ alone, but God will issue reward based on faithfulness after salvation. Now, someone might say, well, that's just faithfulness in general. That's not specifically speaking of my fellowship with the local church. I can do things as an individual to receive reward. Really? Jesus told the church of Philadelphia to continue as a church, as a church, to continue in faithfulness And he exhorted them. He said in Revelation 3.11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, this isn't speaking of hanging on to your salvation. God does that. You can't hang on to your own salvation. It's speaking of not losing heavenly reward for going off the rails as a church. And he holds them accountable as an entity, as a group. There's one more spiritual danger you can harm the church. You can harm the church. Someone who has been in Christ, in the church, has publicly proclaimed Christ as their Savior and yet stays aloof and won't engage and won't actually become a a, a true, full part of what's going on. You can actually become a liability to the local church. This is the person who ultimately, and trust me, I've been around long enough to see this, ultimately becomes the biggest complainer, the biggest critic, person with the highest view of himself and the lowest view of everyone else letting others do all the serving and giving and reaching out. And that can harm the church. By the way, I want you to notice a little detail here. It doesn't say in the text that the believers were devoted to fellowship as an activity. It says they were devoted, definite article, to the fellowship, a noun, And commentators have long recognized that this definite article indicates that there is a distinctive group, a membership, the fellowship. We are called to the spirit of partnership of koinonia. And yes, I know that's scary. But what about those parts of my life I don't want people to find out about? Well, Christ already knows. So you may as well bring it here so that we can work together on our sanctification We are called to koinonia. There's a third priority showing that the members knew what to do. We'll call it praise. Praise. In another message, I'm going to focus more intently on the praying nature of the church. But for our purposes today, I want to highlight one particular aspect of their their communion, their communication with God. The, The new church was devoted to the prayers. Definite article. Meaning that in all likelihood, They were engaging in praying through a body of work which contained prayers which these Jews were already used to praying. And and after all, they're still praying to the same God. 
They just now have recognized that God came to them in the flesh. God came to them in the person of Jesus Christ. So all the prayers that could be offered to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, can still be offered to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, in the name of Jesus. Now, where in our Bible do we have a body of work which contains prayer after prayer after prayer after prayer? What, what book is it? Psalms. Book of Psalms, of course. A book of prayer and a book of what? Of praise. And that's why I'm identifying these prayers as prayers of praise. There are certainly other types of prayers as well, but, but these Jewish believers, they instinctively went to the Bible for their prayers to give, to give voice to what they wanted to express to the Lord. And if they were in the Psalms for prayer, which I think we can make a very strong case for, what else did a faithful Jew do with the Psalms? What had faithful Jews been doing with the Psalms in their homes for centuries? They'd been singing them. They'd been singing. Family worship was already a part of the faithful Jewish home, and now the believers were not only meeting in the temple altogether, but meeting in homes and bringing their friends and their co-workers and family members for meals and for prayer and for the apostles' teaching and for praise. And now they could praise and sing with a new enlightenment. Can you imagine what it would be to be a Jew who for your whole life you'd been praying and singing Psalm 22, but now you realize that you're, you're singing prophetically of a crucified Savior? They've been praying and singing Psalm 23 their whole lives, which now prophetically they could see that this shepherding Savior, the Lord is my shepherd. Oh, this is Christ. And then to pray and to sing Psalm 24, which speaks prophetically of the Savior returning as a conquering king and remembering the words of Christ that he would return in all of his glory and the whole world would see him. Oh, how exciting must it have been to sing through the Psalms and see Christ, 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 Christ everywhere. Verse 47 says that the church was praising God. In 1887, the eminent English preacher Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes of the faith, he stood up against his own denomination, the Baptist Union, in what came to be known as the downgrade controversy. The Baptist Union was endorsing doctrinal decline, and they were really undermining the authority of Scripture. And the result was is that churches in the Baptist Union were beginning to go off the rails. They were bringing entertainment into their church services. You think that's a 20th century phenomenon? That's been going on for centuries. They would bring in vaudeville acts and circus acts onto the stages of the church to try to bring more church members in. I saw a video on Twitter this week of a guy, a pastor, ziplining to the pulpit. But what was funny was that it went too slow. It took him like 15 minutes to get there. Very anticlimactic. And Spurgeon stood up against this. He harshly criticized his own denomination and in a bold move, Spurgeon, the pastor of the largest Protestant congregation in the world at that time, he resigned from his own denomination and six months later, they reprimanded him. They censured him. They said, you're you're not worthy of our respect. Anybody hear of any of those pastors who voted against him? Nope. Anybody hear of Charles Spurgeon? Yes. Spurgeon defended the sanctity of the praise of God in worship services to the point of being rejected by so many he had associated with. And this commitment to high worship, 
to the highest regard for lifting the praises of God rather than entertaining men. This was birthed out of Spurgeon's unwavering commitment to the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel was the central focus of this worship. In 1870, Spurgeon wrote an article for his magazine, The Sword and the Trowel, and the article was called, How Shall We Sing? It was written to a group of music leaders, worship leaders of the faithful evangelical churches in his day. He called these music leaders the chief musicians of the local church after the title given in many of the Psalms. In fact, he nicknamed them the sweet singers of Israel. And here's what he said. Oh, sweet singer of Israel, remember that the song is not for your glory, but for the honor of the Lord. Therefore, select anthems and tunes such as will aid the people to magnify the Lord with their thanksgivings. When the Metropolitan Tabernacle was being built very early in his ministry to to house what would be the largest congregation in the world, it was meant to seat some 6,000 people. And it was at Spurgeon's insistence to be designed so that two things could happen. Number one, so that the preached word could be heard well. And number two, so that the congregation could hear one another singing. In other words, it was not designed to be a concert hall. It was designed to be a worship hall. Very, very different thinking. Not only this, but he strongly urged that a local church should have a music education program to teach people how to sing. He said this, teach the lads and lasses and their seniors to run up and down the scales and drill them in a few good, solid, thoroughly musical tunes. Why? Because praising God is worth learning how to do. We love that. Oh, these members knew what to do. They knew what to do. They knew that preaching, partnership, and praise were to be their priorities. Now, if the members knew what to do, it follows that this well-ordered church had leaders who knew what to do. We don't have to spend much time on this. We've already seen the fruit of the labor of the ministry of the leaders. But turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts 6, the the church set the bar extremely high for their leadership. One church bulletin was so desperate. The church was so desperate for servants that the bottom of the bulletin said, we need you to help in the church. If you have a heartbeat, come see the pastor. That's the qualification. Not the church in Jerusalem. They had a high bar. We could divide our thinking very simply into two categories. You had the lead servants and the lead shepherds. The lead servants and the lead shepherds. And this kind of sets the tone. Acts 6 verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now the text is, this is obvious. I mean, it teaches itself. These men knew what to do. Well, what about the lead servants? Let's consider them first. 
This is a record of the very first member care ministry in the history of the church. The the church put forward for approval by the apostles a group of men who were to take charge of this ministry. But did you notice it wasn't just any person willing to help? This wasn't an overall call for volunteers. They had to conform to certain standards. Verse 3, they had to be of good repute. They had to have a good reputation among many. They also had to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. This is not opposed to not having the Holy Spirit. That's a doctrinal deviation. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. But the idea of being full of the Spirit is that you're walking in the ways of the Lord. This is the idea that the Apostle Paul put forward in Galatians 5 when he says, don't walk in the flesh, but walk in what? The Spirit. These were men who were set out to take care of the tasks Throughout the church body, which the apostles, the first shepherds of the church, they were not to spend their time doing. These these lead servants aren't necessarily the first deacons, although there's a, a lot of similarity. Their role at times seemed to expand beyond that, especially with Stephen, who was a mighty preacher in his own right. But it did at least provide a precedent for the development of the office of deacon, the deacon role, which would be elaborated further by the apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3. So the lead servants, the, 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 the chief lowest people, if we can use that metaphor, that irony, they were to be qualified men of God. Then you had the lead shepherds. In this particular case, the apostles themselves, and as the apostles trained up qualified shepherds and appointed elders for the church, the role of the lead shepherd would be further clarified in 1 Timothy 3 and then in Titus chapter 1 as elders or pastors or overseers. It's the same office. And in fact, we could clarify even further that as the church developed, specific roles among the elders also developed. 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 seems to delineate elders who shepherd the flock in many varieties of ways in leadership. They are called the elders who rule well. And then you have those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there seems to be a delineation of roles. But, but here for our purposes, we see that these shepherds, they knew what not to do and they knew what to do. What not to do, they, they were faced with a very practical matter of either worrying about the, the physical needs of the church or the, the spiritual needs of the church. They, they had to choose. Verse 2, the second half, the, the apostles said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That, that was their choice. It's like the pastor who was told by his leadership board that they felt he wasn't working hard enough, so he met with them and said, let's brainstorm what I ought to be doing and how many hours a week I should be spending on this. So they added it all up and gave him a 114-hour-a-week job description. That's not real. That's not reality. Now, this doesn't mean that the leaders weren't unconcerned, that weren't unloving. They just couldn't do it all. So the body of Christ was to organizationally and organically take care of other needs. So they knew what not to do. We were told in seminary, there are a million good things you can do. Pick the three or four great things that you can do. They also knew what to do. They had a very simple job description for themselves. Verse four, they devote themselves to prayer and to the word. We put this another way. The majority of the time was not to be spent before people, but before God. I spend way more time with the Apostle Paul than I've ever spent with any of you. I spend more time with Peter and with Abraham and with Moses 
These are men that I know very well because I spend more time with them than I do with you as it ought to be. The, the shepherds were to be filled to overflowing with the truth of the word and then the fruit of their prayers and the fruit of their study, the fruit of their time with God would come overflowing to people in, in a passion and in a joy and in a, in a thankfulness where I can't wait to share this with you. I can't wait to proclaim the gospel with you. I can't wait to show you what Joel chapter two says. I can't wait to show you what Genesis chapter 50 says. I can't wait to show you. And it overflows and comes out to your benefit. And you bring the fruit of this labor to the people and you feed them a sumptuous feast of gospel truth. You know what one of the primary obligations of a teaching shepherd is to be? It's something that Dr. Steve Lawson says is critical in an expository preaching ministry, something that's absolutely essential. It's something that Charles Spurgeon did constantly. It's something that the Apostle Paul did constantly. And yet it's something which the average American church member would say, oh, what a waste of time for my pastor. You know what that is? We're to read and read and read and read and read. From a human standpoint, one of the most successful pastors I've ever known. His ministry has gone worldwide. His ministry has had an impact. He has seen thousands and thousands of people saved under his ministry. And when he was a young pastor who didn't know anything, he served under another man. And that man who is the lead pastor, he said, you will lock yourself away in your office and for 75% of your week, you will read the Bible. And you will not take appointments. You will not do anything else. You go dark. You go off the radar. And that man has had a preaching ministry that is astounding. We're to do what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You ever sat under somebody's preaching and you get the sick feeling in your stomach, he's making this up? That's just a terrible feeling. You're sitting in the back, I wonder if I can make it out during the closing prayer. We can't make things up. This is the word of God. Very interesting to me, the King James Version actually took a little interpretive license with that verse and they translate the word for do your best simply as study to show yourself approved. And now, now, do you see the interplay between the wonderful things that the members know to do and the wonderful things that the, that the leaders know to do, this joyous and, and beautiful interchange between these members and the leaders, that they had preaching as a priority. Leaders knew what to do in providing that preaching. Can you imagine taking a violin that's about to be played by a master and right before he goes on stage, those little tuning thingamajiggers, I don't know what those are called, and when nobody's looking, you just take one and just twist it a little bit before he goes on stage. And he starts to play this beautiful music and all of a sudden, he comes on to something just horrible. When the leaders know what to do and the members know what to do, all the strings are tuned and beautiful music happens. Now, if you were to go Christmas shopping for the Lord Jesus Christ, this might present a problem. I mean, at the very least, first of all, his very first Christmas, he got a box full of gold. I don't know if you're going to outdo that. You, know, you could go to an exclusive clothing store like Beverly Hills stores that, I mean, you drive by it and they charge you $100. How would that compare to what he already has? Romans one thirteen says he wears the robe and the sash of a king. Or you could get him a new car 
except the Lord Jesus Christ is omnipresent and can be anywhere at all times. Maybe, and you might be getting closer since Jesus is a fully human being as well as God, and as a human, he likes food. Maybe you could buy him a beautiful steak dinner. Well, the problem is, is that Psalm 50 verse 10 says he already owns the cattle on a thousand hills. How about this one? Free tickets to Disneyland for all the fun rides that he could go on. But I suppose after ascending into heaven, flying through the atmosphere to be transported beyond the stars to the third heaven, the dwelling place of God beyond the universe, I suppose it's a small world probably wouldn't cut it. But you know what Christ does want? He wants a bride who is pure and clean. A church that's obedient and submissive to him and to his wishes. And so our first gift to Jesus, and it's really up to you to do your part, is a well-ordered church. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much for this inspired history of the church. We thank you for the example of the church of Jerusalem. And now, Lord, as the church in Jerusalem did so many times, we have the privilege now of coming to you in the Lord's table. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for this ultimate high point of Christian worship to do that particular thing that the Lord Jesus commanded us to do, to remember him, to remember the sacrifice of his body and the spilling of his blood to make payment for our sin. And so, Lord, now consider our hearts, receive our confession, Lord, and allow us the privilege of remembering the Lord Jesus Christ in the Lord's table with pure hearts, with humble hearts, with bowed down hearts before you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.